Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. And we will be camping out here uh, this morning together. But first, did you know that Wisconsin statute section 97.18 renders it illegal for a restaurant to serve margarine as a butter substitute unless specifically requested? Do you also know that according to Wisconsin Agricultural Trade and Consumer Protection Rule number 81.40, the flavor of Wisconsin certified premium grade double A cheddar must be, quote, highly pleasing. While rule 81.42 states that grade B cheddar need only be fairly pleasing. However, there are really no definitions for these terms that are provided. Uh, in Wausau, the Municipal Code Chapter 9.08.020 states, no person, listen carefully, no person shall throw a snowball by hand or by any other means at any other person or at, in, or into any building, street, sidewalk, alley, highway, park, playground, or other public place within the city. These are real laws, guys. Uh, it, Sun Prairie City Code 10.32.02 says that no bicyclist shall practice any trick or fancy riding in any street in the city. <laughs> the code also prohibits riding a bike on city streets with the feet of the rider removed from the bicycle pedals and specifies that bikers may not remove both hands from the handlebars. And lastly, in section 70-153 of the Sheboygan City Code, it states the following, that no persons shall, with purpose or intent, water their property in any manner to the distress or annoyance of others. <laughs> so go ahead and water your lawn but just make sure that you're not annoying your neighbor while you do it. Laws, laws can be very helpful. In many instances, laws have the capacity to, to protect you and I from harm, either from ourselves or from other people. But laws can also be quite strange and confusing. Laws can easily be misunderstood. We might even wonder why some laws in particular were even written and passed into law in the first place. And sometimes if we don't understand or appreciate a law, we may simply just disregard it. And on the contrary, we may be those people that just are very eager to enforce even the most ridiculous laws upon other people. But the issue of knowing and understanding the law was no different in the first century. In fact, it really has been true throughout all of human history that knowing, understanding, following, obeying, and applying the law is, is not an easy task for us to follow. 
And as the Apostle Paul penned his letter to Timothy, he knew, as you and I knew, and the church knew, how prone men and women were to developing wrong views of the law. And some thought that by following the law and living a good moral life, they could earn their way into heaven. They would be prone to focus too much on their performance and their own ability to obey. Now, the, the waters of morality are further muddied by causing confusion about just who is righteous and who is lawless. And when it comes to open discussions about, about the law in particular, we may no longer comprehend what we're saying, just as Paul accused those in Ephesus. We comfortably make confident assertions about matters of the law that we don't even understand. And in our text that we'll look at this morning, Paul draws Timothy's attention to this issue because the law was being used unlawfully by some in Ephesus. Apparently, there were even some who were desiring to teach the law without even understanding it. Now, the first few lines of Paul's letter reveal that contrary to the false doctrine that was being propagated in Ephesus, the true purpose of the church, as is contained in the first few verses that we looked at last week, but the first thing that Paul draws his church's attention to is that the purpose of the church is love. Love from a, a clean heart, a good conscience, and genuine faith. But what false teaching produces are speculations, arguments, troubles, and division. You could say that bad theology leads to bad character, or to put it another way, bad character can be a sign of bad theology or bad theological thinking about the law. If Paul proceeds to clarify how we are to, to view the law in light of the apparent confusion, what does the church do with the law? How does the church deal with the law in a lawful manner? And what is the purpose of the law in the life of a Christian? Does it serve any purpose at all? The answer? Well, the law exists to show us many things. And I would even argue that the law exists not merely to show us something, but to show us someone. So let me submit to you this morning that the good law magnifies the good one. And that is how the Christian should use the law lawfully. The good law magnifies the good one. I believe there are, there are three helpful points that will prove to guide us carefully as we walk through this text this morning. First, the law shows us what is good. So the law shows us what is good. Second, the law shows us who is not good. And third, the law shows us why we should love the good one. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 this morning. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, 
liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And as we approach this text this morning, we ask that you would indeed inform us uh, with the help of your spirit, Lord, that we would know your truth, uh, that it would be refreshing and satisfying to our souls this morning, that we would understand uh, the good, righteous, and holy purpose of your law in our lives. And Lord, we ask that, that this, this good law would magnify the good one, your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So again, three points this morning. First, the law shows us what is good. Second, the law shows us who is not good. And third, the law shows us why we should love the good one. So the law shows us what is good, who is not good, and why we should love. So, so point one, the law shows us what is good. Now, Paul assumes that we, that we all know something about the law. And earlier in this particular letter, Paul mentions certain persons that were causing trouble. They were, they were teaching false doctrine. And these certain persons in Ephesus, they weren't wrong for, for desiring to teach the law. They were wrong for promoting false doctrine about the law. They were devoted to myths, genealogies, and, and they simply, according to Paul, they just didn't even understand the law that they wanted to teach. So it's their approach that was wrong, but the law itself is good and can be used in a good way. The law given by God is not to be considered bad, though the law can be mishandled with bad results. And this was true in the first century church as it is true today. And so Paul begins with an affirmation for the church. And in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So Paul begins again with that affirmation, we know. He's, he's affirming that the church knows this, which, which shows that this is a common understanding of the Christian community, that the law is good. That, that Paul wasn't telling them that the law is good. He says that we know the law is good. It's beneficial if it's used in the manner in which God has intended. And Paul assumed that within the Christian community, even in the first century, that there were, there were certain things that were understood regarding the law. The church was indeed familiar with an orthodox teaching on the law, and at the very least, what the church apparently knew, if they knew anything about the law, were at least two things. Number one, they knew the identity or the content of the law, its moral nature. And the second thing that they knew was the character or quality of the law. Namely, it's good. The law is good. And Paul says that Quite plainly, right? You know, there's many things in Scripture that can be kind of confusing sometimes, but Paul says we know that the law is good. And what Paul identifies as the good law is on the same side as the gospel and doctrine. Elsewhere in Paul's letter, he writes some very, very similar statements. In his letter to the church at Rome, he says, I agree with the law, that it is good. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And Paul also says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's almost bordering redundancy. Uh, don't make a mistake about it. Paul believed that the law was good. And God's law can be declared good because it is God's standard for righteous 
and holy living. So what, what this church knew about the law was not only that it was good, but that it had a, a real moral nature to it. The good law is God's moral standard of righteousness, holiness, and goodness. And Paul mentions the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, in the most extreme negative language. Paul deliberately picks appalling examples of sin and lists them here to make known the worst-case scenario outcome of, of false teaching. It leads to very serious sin. And so I'm going to read again for us, just so you can uh, pay attention to the kind of language that Paul uses here. And he's basically giving a uh, one term or two terms to refer to the way that the Ten Commandments are all violated. And so, beginning in verse 8, he says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. Now, the, the heinous sins mentioned are the result, in Paul's estimation, of unsound doctrine, of heresy. The gospel requires the same conduct that the law requires, not as the way to earn grace, but as the appropriate response of gratitude. Paul concludes this statement by saying that the law is good, these are violations of it, but he also says, in line with the laws, anything that is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And so the good law shows us what is good, and though Paul highlights the most extreme negative transgression of each of the Ten Commands, for every, for every negative violation, there is also a positive fulfillment. So you could read Paul's list of the commands and their violations and think, what is good about murdering and lying. Well, he is showing the church that these are the most epic failures when it comes to obeying, or in this case, disobeying the moral law. But the law is good because the law does not only prohibit certain righteous good behavior, it also promotes those righteous, standard, holy actions. So instead of just striving with all your might, not to commit adultery. Positively, you are faithful, and you love your spouse. Instead of doing whatever you can to not steal, the law promotes giving generously. Instead of doing whatever you can, you can to refrain from telling a lie, the law promotes telling the truth, being honest. And so what's born out of this good law, God's moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, is God's eternal standard for what is good. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be holy? And so Paul knew then that the, that the law, this good law, shows us what is good? But it doesn't just show us what is good. The law also shows us who 
is not good. So point number two, who is not good? Well, Paul makes it a point to remind Timothy and the church in Ephesus that the law is indeed for a particular category of individuals, namely those who are not good. See, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says with qualification, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. But Paul, Paul apparently grants exemption to the just, and, and then he moves right along to take aim at those who need the law. And it appears that the, the first pair of terms that Paul gives here, the lawless and disobedient, function as a general general kind of introduction to the more specific and well-known list that, that he follows with. And these two terms bring into perspective for those of, of whom the law is given. Namely, the law is given primarily for those who need its discipline and restraint and their propensity for lawlessness and disobedience. Now, it's, it's worth noting then also that See, when Paul lists this, this, this good law, this moral law, the Ten Commandments, in terms that reflect their extreme negative violations, he doesn't simply name the sin. Now, what Paul does instead, he identifies the violation with the violator himself. So if you notice, he doesn't just say, don't strike your father and mother. He says, those who strike their mother and father. It's not just that homosexuality is wrong, it's those who practice homosexuality. It's not that telling a lie is wrong, it's liars are wrong. So Paul doesn't just name a list of sins or violations that are in the abstract, that these are the sins that you cannot do, he is listing sinners. And more specifically, each violation, that's kind of hard to see in our, in our English text, but each, each list of a violator is actually in the plural, which means that these lawbreakers are not confined to a select few. This list assumes, at the very least, that there are more than a few people who violate this good law. Now, this is a, a list that's not only of sins, but of sinners. And I would propose that the Bible teaches the universality of, of lawless living. Again, you know, Paul writes his letter to the Church of Rome, and, and he says that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, he said, I, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, if we were to ask Paul, who is the law for? The answer should be everyone. The law is for everyone. For no one is good, and the law shows us who is not good. And this is, this is humbling. If you read that list, and keep in mind, this is the list of the 
most extreme, heinous violations of God's law, it should humble us. When Paul identifies those who, who need the law, those who are, who are not good, he is simultaneously showing us how to use the law lawfully. And again, that's his point. He's, he's saying there are people who want to teach the law, but, but they don't even understand it. And he, he says that we know it's good if we use it lawfully. And so to use the law lawfully means to use it in accordance with the intended use of the law. And so any, any abuse or misunderstanding of the law can err on the side of, of either legalism, you must keep the law perfectly, or on the other side, it can err on the side of antinomianism, meaning just don't even worry about it, just disregard it. And so Paul shows us at least two ways to use the law lawfully. The first would be the law reveals the identity of the unrighteous. It shows us our sin. In fact, it shows us, again, who is, who is not good. And, and the second thing is the law also serves to restrain our sin. And the collective teaching of Scripture confirms this. Here's just a, a small sampling. You know, in, in John's first letter, he said that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This is important for us. Why? Because it actually helps us realize that sin is in relation to the law. How do we know what sin is? Well, we have to know what the law is. So, so the law reveals what sin is. If we tell someone that you shouldn't sin, we should at least be able to tell them what the reference point is. And so John says that sin is lawlessness. Uh, Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Again, the law serves to show us what our sin is. He says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. doesn't mean that the law made him sin. It just means the, the law made him aware of his sin, and all of a sudden he could see that he was sinning all over the place because now this, the law had revealed it. Paul also said that the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression, meaning if there isn't a law telling us what is right and wrong, then we can't say that there is such a thing as a sin. There has to be some objective moral standard that we can look to for what is good and what is wrong. Paul also said that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if the moral law has been abolished in the sense that there is no longer a moral law, then there can be no such thing as sin. And so the law remains useful for not only revealing our sin, but also revealing our need for a savior. To reveal our, our sin also reveals our need for a perfect, sinless savior. Amen? The law is also used lawfully to restrain wrongdoers. It warns, it informs, it convicts, it condemns every man of his own unrighteousness. And this is how the law is used for society. It, it keeps men and women from being as sinful as they could be. Not every person in the world is walking around committing every single heinous violation of the law. 
And that's because Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that when, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And the main point here is that the law has a convicting, condemning, restraining work to do for unrighteous people. We instinctively know right from wrong because God's good law has been written on our hearts. So the law shows us what is good. The law shows us who is not good. Me. You. And we desperately need a savior. But the third thing that the law shows us is why we should love the good one. The third and most important thing. The law shows us how to love and why we ought to love. Now this really shouldn't surprise us too much as Paul has already mentioned in his letter that the goal or, or purpose of the church is to love. If you look back at, at chapter 1 verse 5, he tells Timothy that the aim of our charge is love. So he makes it quite clear that, that love is the aim of the church. Our aim is love, and he continues, it's, it's love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so Paul then develops this thought in verses 8 through 11 as he describes for us how a pure heart and a good conscience and the gospel itself relate to the law. Because a lawful use of the law means that we use it in accordance with the gospel. Because if the law includes anything that is contrary to sound doctrine that's in accordance with the gospel, then the law and the gospel, if they are related, they must be some of the most intimate of friends. Because every sin ultimately comes from a fundamental failure to believe rightly about God and his moral character. Sound doctrine is, is that which comes from and is in accord with the gospel that displays God's glory as the blessed one. And so to love God and to love neighbor is the, the summary of the moral law or the Ten Commandments. Jesus, Jesus doesn't relax the definition of sin. He reinforces God's moral commands. And so one example in the Gospels uh, Matthew in particular, just to pick one, uh, he's approached and they say, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love the na your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says in John's Gospel, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Galatians 5 says, Through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And one more in Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love 
is the fulfilling of the law. And so this, this good law, the commands of God, are a summary of God's commands, and it's not a replacement. In fact, love remains, in many ways, undefined until God's specific moral commands give it meaning. You and I are not free to define love however we want, nor are we free to decide how to love others that best suits ourselves. And an example of this, if, if I notice that my wife is, is having maybe a busy day and I want to I love her by doing the laundry, I could do the laundry. Now, if you know my history of how well I do the laundry, you would know that my desire to show love towards my wife by doing the laundry would actually prove to be almost hateful. <laughs> <laughs> Because once upon a time, in doing the laundry, I also mistakenly washed her Bible, and it blew to bits. And now I am banned from doing the laundry, for good reason. But just because I desire to show love in a particular way to my wife doesn't mean that she will feel love, reciprocated. <laughs> and that's because love has to be defined in some capacity, and God's love is defined by his standard of what is, what is good and holy and just and what is immoral, wrong, or sinful. The gospel and, and the proper teaching of the law concur in terms of their concern for a righteous life and in their teaching against sin. And so, so thus, when the law is rightly applied, when it's used lawfully as an ethical restraint against sin, it's in full accordance with the ethical norm given in the gospel as a standard for a righteous, redeemed life. And the aspiring teachers in Ephesus, they didn't understand that the, that the goal of the law, which is love, is pursued not by works of the law, but by inner spiritual transformation, which the law itself cannot bring about on its own. These, these aspiring teachers in Ephesus that didn't get the law, they were, they were turning aside from matters of the heart, conscience, and faith. And that means that they are not using the law lawfully, and that is why they are not arriving at the law of love. Now, where it's impossible to obey God's moral laws before conversion, when a person is graciously redeemed, God enables him to obey the power by the power of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. And Ezekiel, as a promise of the fulfillment of the new covenant, the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Very similar in Jeremiah 31, again referring to the promise of the new covenant, the Lord says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So therefore, when, when Paul is penning this letter, and he, he talks about what we know about this good law and, and who the law is for, it's possible that the, that the just, whom Paul refers in his letter, could be those who are living in conformity to the requirements of the law by the power of the work 
of Christ and the Holy Spirit in them. See, in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says that we have to understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Now, while it might be fair to suggest that Paul was referring to those who are made just through faith in Christ, I'm going to propose that we go maybe one step further. So, if you remember when we looked at the, the list of commands, I, I told you that uh, Paul listed these violations in their most extreme, heinous violation, and he, and he also listed them not by the sin itself, but by the person who was violating those sins. And the other thing Paul did in that list was he, he listed them in plural. And so that these violators weren't just a single person who violated these commands, but it was given each term in plural. However, when we come to just, we should expect that then there's also a sense in which the just are many people who are just. But for those who Paul claims that the law was not laid down for, namely the just, where we would expect to find a, a plural term, instead we find the singular. Is that a coincidence? See, though, though there are a great many sinners, there can only be one who is just. The God-man Jesus. The law commanded and condemned and pointed to a Redeemer who was to come. He alone was born free from sin and lived a perfect, holy, righteous life. Not once not once did Christ violate a moral command of God in thought, word, or deed. Not one sinful thought. And the only hope you or I have to, to claim the title Paul gives as just is because Jesus gives it to you. And this is how he does it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake... God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We might become just. But what does it mean to be sin, who knew no sin? I mean, what, what does it look like? Well, I think it looks a lot like reading our passage like this, Christ the just, the righteous and holy one, became the lawless and disobedient. Jesus the ungodly, Jesus the sinner, Jesus the unholy and profane, Jesus who struck his mother and father, Jesus the murderer, Jesus, the sexually immoral, Jesus, who practices homosexuality, Jesus, the enslaver, Jesus, the liar, Jesus, the perjurer, Jesus is 
everything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And if we were to read verse 8 a little differently, I think Paul would say, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, Grace Hill Church, that the law is not laid down for Jesus, but for you and I. If God's verdict on your life changes from guilty to not guilty, it will be because of your trust in the just one, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness, and not in your law-keeping. And if your heart is transformed from a rebellious sinner to a submissive saint, it will not be the law that brought you about the change, but the Spirit of Christ at work in your heart. An unlawful use of the law is you or I believing that we can do anything good that's going to impress God. That by our own obedience, God will declare us just, righteous, holy. Listen to just a portion of the lyrics from the hymn titled, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It starts as follows. Come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect Son of Man. In his living and his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy that the law is good. The law shows us what is good. The law shows us who is not good. And the law shows us why we should love the good one. May the good law forever magnify the good one, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are righteous, holy, and good. And, and so we shouldn't be surprised that your law reflects those qualities. You loved us by sending your son to live a perfect life in full obedience to the law so that through, through his life and death, we might turn to Jesus in faith and be counted just. Not because of our own works or attempts to obey the law, but because Christ became our sin and took our place in the cross. May we never believe the false doctrine that our obedience to the law can save us. Instead, may we look upon your good law and see the majesty of your Son.
Amen.